Listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Jacob Noblet. Thanks so much for being here today, Jacob. This is your first interview with us, I believe, isn't it? That's correct. Excellent. Well, I am glad that you were able to record this interview. Today, you are interviewing Dr. Michael Graziano on his recent book, uh, errand into the wilderness of mirrors. Is that correct? That's right. Can you tell us a little about what you've discussed and what our listeners can expect to hear in this episode? Errand into the wilderness of mirrors and Michael Graziano explores the relationship between the CIA and religion, specifically how they use a comparative religious framework to gain intelligence in places like Vietnam, Korea, Iran, and even the Vatican. That sounds like it will be a really interesting episode because, you know, we don't have a lot of episodes that really kind of deal with these these topics in this particular way. I am very excited for this episode today. And this is The Wilderness of Mirrors, Nationalism, Religion, and Secret Intelligence with Mike Graziano by you, Jacob Novelet. Take it away. Hi, listeners. My name is Jacob Novelet with the Religious Studies Project. I'm here with Dr. Michael Graziano, who's an assistant professor of religion at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, His research focuses on how the United States, religion, and law interact with one another. In his book, Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the USA, really brings these ideas together incredibly well. So your book is set in both the Cold War era and World War II. Um, and it extends past that. So could you explain the idea um, of, can you explain the motivation of your book? Why, what inspired you to really get into this topic? Yeah, uh, sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I think as far as the motivation for writing the book, part of it um, will be very familiar to lots of folks listening, which is I was trying to come up with an interesting dissertation topic, something that I wouldn't hate to work on for several years at a time. Um, and my, I've always been interested in religion and law stuff. Um, and really, the origin of this product, uh, this project is pretty serendipitous. I was looking uh, at something entirely different. Um, I sort of came across uh, the story of uh, Tom Dooley, who ends up being one of the figures that I look at in the book. Um, and I kind of stumbled into uh, this very, you know, interesting story of the relationship between the CIA and religion in the Cold War and was surprised that more folks had not done work on this. Um, and so what started off as kind of like a one-off thing I was going to do or maybe an article um, ended up sort of taking over my entire focus and then became my dissertation project and, and eventually, of course, uh, this book. So during during this time, there's obviously a lot of conflict going on in the world. Um, can you talk about how the U.S. government decided they wanted a spiritual counterforce, as you say, a kind of weaponizing scholarship? So my book looks at how the Office of Strategic Services and then later the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, so two uh, intelligence organizations, really tried to develop religious expertise um, and how they try to use this information to advance U.S. national security as they understood it. 
And so this idea of a spiritual counterforce comes out of some of the early Cold War directives about how the U.S. was supposed to conduct itself in the world against the threat of the Soviet Union as part of the Cold War. And one of the consequences of that is that groups like the OSS and then the CIA in the Cold War took seriously religion as um, as, a, as a tool, if not a weapon, as something um, that could be used to influence populations around the world, uh, to push them towards aims towards things uh, that these organizations wanted to see done. Um, And as my book shows, it wasn't just folks around the world, but in the early Cold War in particular, the CIA uses some of these same uh, techniques to try to affect domestic American uh, perceptions of religion and domestic American perceptions of other places around the world, also to support these same U.S. national security outcomes. And what kind of framework did they did they view their research from? Were they targeting any particular religion or were they looking at it more broadly? Yeah, they're generally they were generally looking at it pretty broadly. They're mostly interested in uh, what we might think of as religion writ large or like the category of religion, although they didn't talk about it like that. And this gets to one of the things I talk about um, a lot in the book, which is for the CIA and for other uh, intelligence officials, other intelligence actors. One of the really curious things that I found was that there was this widespread belief that religion everywhere was essentially the same. Um, that no matter where they were looking or sort of when they were looking, what religion was, was at its core the same, even as the outward sort of trappings of religion might be different, that rituals might be different, the holidays, whatever, um, but that all religions shared a, a core. And that if you could figure out what that core was, you could figure out how to manipulate religion anywhere or understand religion anywhere. And and you mentioned like one of the ways that they do this is they're using the world religions paradigm. Do you, do you think they were more influenced by that kind of paradigm or were they kind of acting as agents constructing it as well? Uh, I mean, it's probably a little bit of A, a little bit of B. I think the world religions paradigm, I mean, of course, although they didn't call it that, these ideas about world religions were... Uh, in the water. They were already part of the culture. When you look at how world religions were talked about in the pages of, you know, popular periodicals like Life magazine or something, um, it's not like, you know, the CIA was the only group talking about uh, this kind of stuff or talking about religion in this way in the 50s and 60s. But I do think when you consider the power that these organizations had, it makes their interest in the world religions paradigm really important to pay attention to because of the assumptions uh, they have, which are influenced by things like the world religions paradigm. This influences um, uh, the on the ground reality for uh, folks all over the world and often not for the better. Since the, the OSS and the uh, CIA are looking at these kinds of religions comparatively, did you come across, I certainly did, but uh, I, want, I want to hear your perspective on inside and outside groups in the book. How, how are they interacting? Because there seems to be, in every situation you gave, at least one or two inside groups, one or two outside groups. Are you thinking of inside groups in terms of uh, groups that uh, the CIA was favoring? or? Yeah, well, let, let, let's give an example. So um, there were individual but I would say mutually beneficial efforts by both the U.S. government and the Vatican to gain intelligence as the Soviet Union was rising. So 
how about that? The the inside group and outside group playing there. Yeah, the uh, OSS, which is the CIA's predecessor in World War II, was particularly interested in the Vatican and Roman Catholicism. Uh, there were a couple reasons for this, but the big one was a pretty um, practical one, which is that uh, Roman Catholicism was understood to be uh, something that could give you a pretty good return on your investment if you could understand it and access it, right? That it had outposts all over the planet, right? It has centralized authority system. And the idea was that if you could tap into one part of this authority structure, particularly high up in the Vatican, um, the thinking was, right, that you would then have access to information from all over the world. One of the other reasons that um, this was seen as a, a good idea or a useful idea within the OSS was that the OSS was run um, by a Catholic, uh, William Donovan, who's a prominent American Catholic politician in the early 20th century. And he lives at a time of really uh, significant anti-Catholicism in the United States. And one of the, uh, what I think one of the interesting things that I explore with him in the book is that just as, or even though he was a, a Catholic, he's one of the leading proponents in the OSS of seeing the Vatican as this kind of like storehouse of incredible information, if only uh, the U.S. could access it. When in reality, the Vatican was nothing but the Vatican, it turns out, was kind of in an information vacuum during the war. They, they had very little good information. Um, but even as an American Catholic growing up in the United States, he had imbibed these popular ideas about Catholicism as secretive and um, all of this other stuff, which you know fit into these anti-Catholic tropes. But nonetheless, it encouraged him to take uh, or to make these policy recommendations when he was leading OSS. And so you have OSS pursuing Roman Catholicism and the OSS pursuing the Vatican in part because of, you know, these uh, big ideas about religion, but also because of the, you know, on the ground realities of religious life in the early 20th century United States. Do you think that OSS was more influenced by Donovan's own Catholic faith in pursuing the Vatican? Or do you think they saw the Vatican more as an other, sort of like that outside group that maybe they could gain some kind of esoteric knowledge and knowledge about other people? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, I think Donovan's Catholicism certainly matters. It's, it's certainly relevant. It's relevant to how he understood the world and how he conducted his life. But one of the points I try to make in the book is that it's also, you know, religion is relevant to people for um, any number of different reasons. And it's not necessarily uh, about, you know, deeply, sincerely held religious beliefs or something or that he woke up every day guided by, I don't know, you know, really profound uh, insights about transubstantiation or something. I think in Donovan's case, it was really that Catholicism acted as an obstacle to his political aspirations, um, thanks to American anti-Catholicism. Right. And so he saw Catholicism as something that he had to overcome or work through, um, which is a different way of thinking about religion, perhaps. In terms of the larger organization, though, right, because the OSS was, of course, just more than its director. In terms of the larger organization, the Vatican occupied a really interesting middle ground where it was different enough from many of the uh, Protestant religious traditions that uh, populated the upper echelons of the U.S. government. It was different enough to be worthy of study, but it wasn't too exotic that you couldn't understand it. And that exoticization threshold, I suppose, is something the OSS really runs into when they try to move beyond studying Catholicism to looking at things like Islam and Shinto, for example. 
Okay, so um, obviously there's a lot of contention and transformation in mid 20th century America um, regarding the opinions about Catholics. Um, you mentioned that William Donovan felt pressure because of his own Catholicism. Do you think that bleeds into, uh, there's a, obviously one of my favorite stories about um, politics and religion is President Kennedy and whether or not he kissed the papal ring. Is that kind of on this same cultural um, perspective? Uh, I mean, in, in, in terms of thinking about anti-Catholicism, sure. Uh, I mean, JFK, first uh, Catholic president, obviously, um, had to navigate uh, anti-Catholicism to you know make it to the highest office in the land. The sort of conspiracy theories about him um, during his life and, and after it um, often turned on his identity as a Catholic, um, which I think, uh, I mean, I'm not a JFK scholar, but I think is a different thing than considering, right, how important was Catholicism to him actually, right? Like, uh, you know, what what influence did it have on his, his life? But in terms of people like Donovan, I think to be an American Catholic in the first half of the 20th century, particularly a person with aspirations towards public office, um, I mean, he runs and, and loses the election to be governor of New York, for example. If you're a Catholic, you're going to meet anti-Catholicism. Uh, this is, right, a period of time in U.S. history where the New York Times um, quotes, you know, folks like the Ku Klux Klan as authoritative sources on uh, what it is to be a Catholic. So he he certainly would have been familiar with many of the things that JFK later experienced. So while um, the population of America is, is kind of coming to terms with Catholicism being a legitimate and not necessarily suspicious religion, that's about the time that the CIA decided to produce uh, religious propaganda over in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, uh, this is this is all a part of that story. So after World War II, um, as you know, many different historians of, and scholars have shown, there's a closing of the ranks, um, what's sometimes called tri-faith America, that Protestants, Catholics, and Jews may have their differences, but what they share is this kind of uh, you know, core religiosity that's opposed to the uh, ostensible atheism of the Soviet Union. And so, right, they have more to gain by banding together than fighting amongst each other. And that those ideas, those themes are certainly uh, played upon by the CIA when they're trying to build American support for intervention in French Indochina, what we would know today as Vietnam. Why, why did they focus so much on the um, religion of some of the people in Southeast Asia as a means of propaganda and not just basic McCarthyism, anti-communism. I'm not sure they would have seen a difference between the two, I suppose, or at least some folks wouldn't have. To understand the religion of folks in Southeast Asia um, and how their religion might have influenced their feelings towards communism was, I think, part of a broader a push against communism. And so by way of example, um, the situation in Vietnam at the time, for those not familiar with it briefly, is that it was a French colony. The French unsuccessfully tried to put down um, an independence movement. Um, they lose. Um, and basically, there's this question about what's, there's an American question about what's going to happen in this corner of Southeast Asia. Um, and to make a long story short, the US basically inherits French security obligations in Vietnam, in the South, and the Soviet Union essentially um, comes into its own sphere of influence in the North. 
Um, and while this will eventually sort of set the stage for what Americans know as the Vietnam War later, there's a period of time in the mid-50s through the early 60s where before there's sort of large combat forces, there's a big struggle that the United States undertakes to establish a sort of solid uh, independent government in South Vietnam with reliable anti-communist credentials. And there's a number of challenges with that. I mean, everything's from like logistics to infrastructure to politics, education. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges the U.S. runs into with this. But one of the things I look at in my book is that uh, as President Eisenhower and his national security team are figuring out what to do, Eisenhower is convinced that the most effective way to do this, you know, the best bang for your buck is to appeal to religion. And so he wonders if there's some, uh, you know, religious types they could work with. And there's actually a really remarkable meeting recorded um, by the State Department, which um, you can access online and we could put in the show notes or something, perhaps if folks are interested. But he asked, you know, are there religion, religious people in South Vietnam we could work with? And someone in the room um, in this recording says, well, there are, but they're Buddhists, right? And unfortunately, the Buddha was a lover, not a fighter, something like that, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And so they're just like, ah, dang, right? Like, that's not going to work. And then they find that there's a Catholic minority, and they're kind of relieved because they're like, okay, well, the Catholics will fight, right? We can count on the Catholics to fight, right? The Catholics can be reliably anti-communist. And so there's this large effort undertaken to build a Catholic minority government in South Vietnam because it's supposed that that'll be the government that resists communism the best. And in order to sell that to the American people, one of the things that um, happens is that the CIA undertakes a really successful domestic uh, disinformation or propaganda campaign directed at the American people to sort of sell them on the vision of South Vietnam as a country of God-fearing Christians that is threatened by godless Soviet atheism. And so Americans should stand ready to defend religious freedom of these Christians uh, in South Vietnam. Yeah, which is one of the stories in uh, my book that I think is just um, remarkable, but uh, you know, strange but true. And, and them fo focusing on the religious minority, in this case, Catholicism, to keep up this vision of a tri-faith America, that's not dissimilar to what they did uh, in Imperial Japan, right? During World War II, they, instead of focusing on the mainstream religions of Buddhism and then Imperial Japan, you had state Shinto. That, that, that's not a dissimilar form of propaganda that they put focus on, right? No, I mean, it, it's similar in the sense that, um, you know, in both cases, they're looking at uh, minority religious movements. Um, in the case of Vietnam, it's a minority Catholic population that had links to the French, of course, um, that made them seem more trustworthy. Um, they also were uh, supposed by the Americans to be a bit more understandable um, than the Buddhists, right? Um, Buddhism was still seen as this kind of strange, exotic thing. And in the case of uh, Japan in World War II, as you mentioned, one of the things that the um, American intelligence officers do is they really focus on Muslim populations that were under the control of Imperial Japan um, with the hope that, right, you could speak to these Muslim populations and sort of splinter them away um, from Japan or get them to rise up against the, you know, uh, Japanese rulers who ruled over them. And the reasoning there was somewhat similar is that even though uh, Islam was seen as you know, more strange than Christian to these American Christians, it was significantly more understandable than something like uh, Shinto. Obviously, they think they're having some kind of success uh, on these these fronts of exploring these different religious traditions. Why wasn't it until Iran that that eroded? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So um, in my book, I chart the development of what I call the religious approach to intelligence, which is a term the OSS comes up with in World War II. And it was the idea, right, that you could sort of access religion anywhere on the planet and get good information, right, good actionable intelligence, because religion is the same everywhere. Um, It was the idea that uh, religion was the same everywhere. And religion was also a natural ally of the United States, because to be religious absolutely meant you were sort of pro-freedom, pro-free market, anti-communism, et cetera, et cetera. And that idea was really influential, of course, not just for the CIA, but, you know, we'd have a conversation about, um, you know, larger American popular understandings of religion in the Cold War as well. But that idea was really influential for the CIA. And one of the things that happens is that even, even in situations where that model does not really pan out, um, say in places like Vietnam, it's either interpreted as failing for reasons uh, apart from the model, right? That it wasn't the model's fault that the particular operation or whatever it informed didn't work. Um, or it succeeds and gets attributed to the model when maybe that's not the case. So, uh, you know, World War II was not won solely because of the OSS's religious approach to intelligence. Um, but to read some of the, you know, memoirs of people in the OSS, they, they chalked it up to this, right? That like they'd sort of cracked the code. And of course, right, uh, the outcome of World War II is obviously far more complex than than that. But I think uh, when it comes to Iran, and this is the final chapter of my book, this is sort of where uh, it became really difficult to ignore the failings of the world religions paradigm as a way to understand the world around us. And so one of the things that happens in Iran is that the CIA is convinced that there will not be a revolution. The CIA is convinced that the Shah, um, the leader of Iran um, before the revolution, is you know solid as a rock, that nothing's going to happen. Um, and then it obviously goes a different way. Um, the revolution happens. The CIA is left in this interpretive vacuum. Um, it's unable to explain why this happened, because all of the intelligence, all of the analysis before the revolution was that Muslim actors won't pose a serious challenge to the government of Iran because they're Muslim, they're religious. And if they right, challenge an American uh, you know, backed leader who opposes communism, they would thereby be strengthening communism, which would mean working against their own interests as religious people, ergo, it's not going to happen. And of course, it couldn't have been more wrong, right? Part of what's happening here, or part of what was happening there, was that um, the CIA found it really difficult to think beyond this binary of sort of religion versus communism or religion versus irreligion, I suppose. Um, and in the aftermath of the revolution and the installation of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the CIA, you know, has a real black eye here in the U.S. government, right? Just with how much they got wrong and what we might think of as the religious approach to intelligence is one casualty of that. And, and so obviously Iran is very different than its neighbors in terms of its its unique culture and, and history. Are, are you suggesting that the U.S. government kind of blinded itself by focusing on Muslim-majority countries as just that, Muslim-majority, as not having their own unique cultures, nationalism? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, that's certainly a part of it. Yeah, you can't understand the world religion's paradigm and the way it gets um, implemented or understood without understanding 
these really totalizing narratives, which are often racist and orientalist, um, and in this case, uh, really insulting and anti-Muslim. There was this idea that Muslim cultures were um, backwards, right? They're stuck in time. Uh, Khomeini is consistently described as like a blast from the past, like someone out of the Stone Age who, right, just doesn't make sense in the modern world. And this is one of the reasons that CIA analysts thought, right, that he didn't stand a chance to challenge the Shah, right? Because he's he's not fit for the modern world. And this fits into a larger interest the CIA had and, and many in the United States had that, you know, in the late 70s, there's a very persuasive understanding of the secularization thesis that religion is on its way out. Um, the future is not religious or it's a kind of religion that's like private and peaceful and whatever. And that's just simply not what happened in Iran. And I think, you know, to your point, one of the weaknesses of the world religions paradigm is that if you're going to essentialize religion around the world across time and space, I don't think there's a way to do that without flattening local cultures, uh, differences among people and, and groups across time and space, which is certainly what happens here. And, and that's because they're chasing this idealism of the United States is a place where religion is free, free to practice, um, whereas you're not going to get that in Soviet Russia. Yes, right, which is a kind of flattening all on its own. And there's you know tons we could talk about, of course, about how um, you know religious freedom in uh, the United States uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when my book is taking place, or today, right, is, of course, uh, limited and um, you know, uh, constrained in all sorts of ways for all sorts of groups in ways that is left out of that narrative of sort of like religious freedom for all. There was, um, I, I can't remember the name of the case because I believe it ultimately was two cases uh, involving Jehovah's Witnesses who did not want to pledge allegiance to the flag after it was mandated um, in mid 20th century America. Do you think if the OSS or the CIA had paid attention to that, that they would have acted differently in terms of viewing religion or would they just have considered that a minority or maybe even used it as championing, Hey, we are free to express religion here. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question. <laughs> Counter counterfactuals are always tricky, right? It's difficult to know, um, you know, what historical actors would have done differently with any certainty, but I think, what your question gets at is that for people who were persuaded by what we might call the world religions paradigm, there's plenty of evidence in the United States at the time, like on its own, that religion was more complicated in that, right. Uh, you didn't have to look, you know, around the world at so-called exotic traditions to sort of find things that didn't fit this model. You could look at, uh, to the, you know, Jehovah's Witness case, you're talking about to a schoolroom in West Virginia, or you could look at, you know, uh, religious movements um, among Black Americans as part of the Great Migration in Northern cities, right? There's all sorts of evidence within the United States on its own that um, things are more complicated than that. But for all sorts of reasons, I would imagine relating to things like race and class, those were not considered. And uh, to your knowledge, does the CIA utilize methods like this anymore? Or was Iran kind of the nail on the coffin for the religious approach? Uh, I don't know. They don't, uh, they don't talk to me, (laughs) Um, but, uh, I mean, I suspect that religion is certainly an element of, um, you know, 
the CIA's work today, it's much easier to get older documents, um, older archival finds than it is to get, you know, current stuff, of course, that remains classified or, or, or secretive. There are, you know, there are the kind of things that eventually make their way into the public domain. So if any of your listeners are curious um, and you want to sort of spice up your Google search history, you can uh, punch in uh, Osama bin Laden uh, doll CIA. Um, and this is one of the sort of more recent instances of this where um, in the early stages of the uh, so-called war on terror, the CIA develops a doll of Osama bin Laden that would be distributed to children um, in various places. And uh, what started off as like an Osama bin Laden action figure as you sort of touched it with your hands and the heat of your hands like melted his face and it like would change to reveal that he's actually a demon, which like step two, there was sort of question mark, question mark, question mark. But step three was like rejecting, you know, terrorism or something like this um, because bin Laden was a, a demon. It leaks into the public domain in part because it's just kind of wacky, but it's also a really good example of a kind of throwback to this earlier religious approach to intelligence, which understands religion in a really mechanical way that if you could understand how, or if you could understand what people believed and you could understand like how to influence that belief, you could get them to change their actions because in this understanding, belief controls action, which makes manipulating those beliefs or influencing them in some way potentially really valuable. The other thing I would say is that, you know, one of the things that people often forget about the CIA is that um, while it does certainly have an operational side, it's also a huge just producer of research. Um, it has tons of analysts. And so if you Google CIA World Factbook, there's this sort of uh, remarkable online resource trying to kind of map out everything about everywhere on the planet, like uh, geographically, environmentally, socially, demographically, religiously. And you can sort of look up stats on you know any country in the world, which um, you know I remember even when I was growing up was told to me in elementary school to like use in a report or something. But like the further I get away from that, is really interesting because it's again this idea that the United States will sort of have this part of its government this job is to know everything about everywhere and if that's the mission of course part of that work is going to include religion awesome so we're running a little short on time but we always like to close with figuring out what you're going to do next so would you mind uh giving us any hints as to some research you're currently doing i would love to know what i'm going to do next um i would love to give you a hint I have a couple uh, different ideas that I'm juggling. And I guess one thing I would say is that I'm increasingly interested in the relationship between religion, national security, and education. So I touch on this a little bit in later chapters of the book. I sort of talk about the development of um, religious studies in the American university system alongside some of the CIA's concerns. But I'm increasingly really interested in K-12 stuff as well and thinking about the way in which American education is structured to reflect certain you know, national security goals of the United States and what that might have to do with American religion. So I think that's, uh, that's the direction I'm moving now. Well, since we're both in the fields of education, that would be you know, quite exciting to see uh, what becomes of that. Hopefully, we will be having a future episode on whatever you uncover. Um, <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Graziano. And um, hopefully we will see you again shortly. Thanks. 
Thanks so much, Jacob and Mike, for this excellent episode. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in today. I hope that you've enjoyed the episode. Head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com, where you can find out more information about the episode and a transcript of it as well. Also, be sure to head over to social media to let us know what you've thought. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like, share, comment. We appreciate any sort of engagement with the posts on social media. So we hope to see you there and continue the conversation. And of course, we appreciate any support that you're able to give. You can sign up for a $1 monthly donation at patreon.com slash project RS or head over to PayPal to give us a one time donation. This goes a long way in helping us just keep the podcast running up to the standards you're used to and helping to pay our team members for the work that they do. And next week, we have an interview with Dr. Maeve McIver on her recent book. So be sure to tune in for that. You won't want to miss it. And until next time, all that's left to say is, thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>